book of Revelation, chapter 3, 7 through 13. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, that you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come upon the whole world to test those who live on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. Him who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will he leave it. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. What if I were to tell you that the doors of Disneyland are wide open, free admission to the park this Thursday, ride as many rides as you want, stay as long as you want. That might be an appealing opportunity if it weren't for the gajillion people who would also join you there. But what if I said it's, the doors are, to Disney World or Disneyland are open, it's a private invitation if you show up. The doors to Madison Square Garden are open for just a few of us to play a pickup game of basketball there on the hardwood. Or you could insert your favorite sports venue. The doors of Yankee Stadium are open. The doors of Bryant-Denny Stadium in Tuscaloosa are open. Um, The doors of the White House are open for your own personal tour if you show up. You get a personal tour of the Oval Office. You know, each of these are silly examples, admittedly, but if they were, if they were actually real opportunities, if it was a, a genuine offer, I think it's safe to say that most of us would be fairly excited about that. I want you to contrast that with the words that Jesus speaks here, where he says, Behold, the doors of heaven are wide open. And it's kind of like, eh, meh, so what? I want something more tangible. I want something more immediate, Lord. Uh, Let the doors of Outback Steakhouse be wide open. But the doors of heaven, they... When you and I got back home on Sunday afternoon last week and we saw the images of those 21 Coptic Christians being paraded along the seashore in those orange jumpsuits, um, for them to hear the words of Jesus, 
Behold, I hold the keys of David, and I have locked the doors wide open for you. That had to mean absolutely everything to them. I have placed before you a door which no one can shut. That, that door, if you're a dying man, means everything to you. And I think that's how many or, or most of the promises of the Bible work. They, they only create a buzz inside of us. They only have a resonance inside of us if we happen to be dying men or dying women. I mean, if the biggest problem you have in your life is the boredom of Friday nights or your job or, or what have you, then sure, pursue a voucher to Outback. But if you're a dying man or a dying woman, this is the only promise, the only door that you will ever care about. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They triumphed over Satan by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Said one of the brothers of the men who, uh, who were martyred. He said in, in an interview, we had hoped that they would be released, but the will of God was for them to be martyrs of Christ and that is better than life. They kept the faith to the last moment, and we are proud of them. It's the door that matters. Let's take a look at verse 7. Well, I actually want to go through a series of these this morning. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia, Turkey, not Philadelphia, not Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, Fry, who <laughs> you spent quite a bit of time there, and the, the crazy drivers of Pennsylvania, he tells me stories about it. Philadelphia and Turkey in the first century, apparently it was a region of a high level of seismic activity. Apparently, 50 years before this letter was written, the entire city of Turkey or rather of Philadelphia, was leveled by an earthquake. So great was the destruction in the city of Philadelphia that they actually had to call out for emergency funds from Rome itself. They petitioned the emperor to help them rebuild their city, which he ended up doing for them. Picture in your mind the uh, Greco-Roman architecture of an ancient first century city all around the city, there are these pillars, marble columns, colonnades. All the way around, all of your significant buildings in the city are these, these great big marble columns. And then, in an instant, they start to shake like a chandelier. They start to crack, crash to the ground. And that's part of the city's history. You wonder if that wasn't what the Christians were thinking about in verse 12, if you look there with me. Verse 12, where Jesus says, Him who overcomes, I will make him to be a pillar, a colonnade, a weight-bearing structure in the temple of my God. Never again will he ever leave it. Ah, that's amazing. Not only does it mean that you, you're going to be a permanent fixture in God's 
heavenly tabernacle, but you will, well, you will provide a, an essential role there. Like a pillar is necessary. Without a pillar, the temple falls. No pillar, no temple. You have an indispensable role in the heavenly tabernacle. That's the first extravagant promise that Jesus makes to this church. The second one is in verse 9. Verse 9. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. What a strange promise, isn't it? To understand this one, you, you have to picture in your mind, uh, it's not like an American city in the east or the southeast where there's a church on every corner. You would have had a Jewish synagogue on one corner that would have been comprised of two or 3,000, 4,000 people, a place, a beautiful Greco-Roman building filled with people that had a great deal of social clout. And then you have a church of Christians who have no building and probably number two or three dozen, 24 to 36 Christians there. And the question is, which of these groups can properly claim to be true Jews? Who gets that title? And Jesus is very clear. He says, those who are truly Abraham's sons and daughters, those who are truly Israel are those who follow me. And they're entitled to that name. And someday, there's going to be an incredible vindication that takes place. Somehow, your detractors are going to come and prostrate themselves, and God's view of things will eventually become clear, and they're going to acknowledge that, that God loves you. The final one I want to draw your attention to is in verse 10. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come upon the whole world to test those who live on the earth. So uh, this is a highly, hotly debated passage in Christian circles. Some Christians think that this is a reference to, have you ever heard it before, uh, referred to as the secret rapture of the church? Those Christians living at the end of history at some point in the future, nobody knows exactly when that'll be, but Jesus will return in the sky and he will summon Christians who are alive on earth. They will be you know, transported up into the clouds and they will return to heaven with Jesus to stay there so that they avoid what will be a seven-year tribulation period. They'll be kept from that. It says that they will be kept from that. And good Christians hold to that. I don't know if you, if you ever read the Left Behind series. You know, that's the position that they take in those books. In our branch of the church, we have historically interpreted it differently. We've interpreted it through the lens of John chapter 17. In John 17, the high priestly prayer of Jesus in John 17, he, he prays for his disciples. He says, Father, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them in the world, that you protect them from the evil one. And the word he uses there for protect is literally keep, that you keep them from the evil one. 
So that's how we've interpreted this, that God will keep those Christians from being overcome by the evil one, that their salvation will never be lost. Their eternal life will never be put in jeopardy in spite of the trials and the persecutions which await. I don't know if you have interest in those kinds of uh, theological questions. Uh, I believe there will be a rapture of the church. I think most Bible-believing Christians believe in a rapture of the church, as I understand it. So the dead in, at the return of Christ, all who are alive will be caught up to meet, meet him in the air. But they won't be evacuated to heaven, but they will return with him in his triumphant procession to participate in his reign on the earth. That's pretty extravagant. You know, all three of these are extravagant, extravagant promises. There's a couple of others that I'll touch on later, but if you're not a Christian and you, you're here this morning, um, you ever wonder, how can these people believe all of this? These extravagant, it just sounds, it seems so far-fetched. What, pillars in the temple of God and people bowing down to you and all of that, it just seems, it seems, I mean, let's be honest, it seems very difficult when you stop to think about it. To this, I would reply, you know, we believe in, an, in a lot of, an, uh, quite a number of truly uh, far-fetched ideas. Like right now, we believe that we're twirling through <laughs> space on a rock. <laughs> right now, we believe that there are so many stars and galaxies out there that you put so many zeros after the, the number of them, it, they run off the page. Have you ever stopped to think about what, uh, how improbable is your own existence? It's mighty improbable. You and I were just one bad mood away, one argument between our parents away from never existing. Uh, you were one headache or one television show or one phone call away from never having been conceived. And then when you stretch that out, over generations. Have you ever thought of it? It's amazing that we're here. You take a generational step back and ponder your grandparents' stories. What were the twists and turns and near misses in your grandparents' experiences? Any one of those, had they worked out any differently, even a minor change in the details, and you don't exist. That's what Back to the Future, Michael J. Fox. But you extend it not just to one generation, what about to, uh, to 50 generations? What about to 100 generations? You go back further and further into your ancestral history, there have been millions of chance encounters, illnesses overcome, storms that have been narrowly missed, uh, schools decisions, wars, travels, ambitions, sorrows over the centuries that had any one of those been altered in the slightest way probably results in your never being born and never being here. So to the, to the charge that we're just kind of crazy to believe the things the Bible tells us, well, we're, it's crazy to be alive. <laughs> it's crazy to exist. Um, you know, it's, 
It should leave you in breathless awe that God commanded and you were created. And the wise person is the one who listens to his promises and believes them and lives as though they were true. To the angel of the church in in Philadelphia, he says, these are the words, uh, where does he say it? He says in verse... Verse 8, I I know that you have little strength. This is the church that's small and weak. I don't know about you, but when I read about churches in the New Testament, I just picture something more grand than 24 people (laughs) sitting together, 36 people sitting together in a living room. He says, I know that you're really weak. You have no energy left. You're, You're maxed out. I think that's a wonderful description of many of the people in this room this morning. We are, you just feel weak, especially. So I went through the category lists of different people in our church who are weak. And the one who maxed out on the weak scale, you know who it happened to be? It happened to be mothers. I mean, is there a single mother in the room today that doesn't feel utterly wiped out and weak? Is there a single mother I mean, as a, without a husband kind of mother who doesn't feel that way. Uh, if you're not providing nutritious home-cooked meals for your kids three times a day and reading the Bible to them when you tuck them into bed at night and praying for them and staying on top of all their homework and you just go through that long laundry list of what good mothers do and if you fail in just one area, then you're a complete failure in all of them because that's how it feels. That the next person on our, the next group of people on our maxed out weak uh, scale is we've got some very physically weak people here today who have struggled to stand up on their own two feet. We've got families who have been sick probably for three straight months, <laughs> and you just feel. I mean, we have insomniacs in the congregation. Think how weak you feel when you can't when you go for a couple of days and you can't sleep. What do you say to the weak Christian? Jesus says in verse, he says in verse 8, keep my word. Keep my word. Meditate on my word. Love my word. Cherish my word. When you're out walking on the green belt later today, listen to my word. When you're driving into the office, the morning commute, Listen to my word. When you're lying in bed and your mind is racing because you're, all, you're nervous about all kinds of things, when you're an insomniac, the other night I made it all the way from Psalm 1 to Psalm 25, just in my audio Bible app version until I finally fell asleep. Listen. Keep my word. Listen to my word. That's number one. Number two is... Don't despise your weakness. Your weakness is probably the best connecting point you have with your non-Christian neighbor and family members. The way to connect with a broken world that we live in is for yourself to be broken and weak. And to not gloss over that fact, not hide it, the most natural connecting point we have with them is, is our needs and letting them meet some of our needs and not 
not despising our weakness, but, but making it clear. Number three is verse 11. I am coming soon, Jesus says. Hold on to what you have, which has to mean hold on to Jesus, of course. Um, you remember that the Bible speaks far more highly about weakness than it does strength because it's, strength, it's weakness. We all know this. It's weakness that makes us press into Jesus, makes us grasp desperately tight to Jesus. That's one thing you hold on to. The other thing you hold on to is you better learn to hold on to the body of Christ because you, you have no idea how social beings we are. There's a burgeoning field out there uh, called interpersonal neurobiology, which tells us that the human brain is rewiring itself every day by virtue of our interactions with each other. So um, all the relationships actually, all of our human relationships actually change the brain. The delicate circuits that shape memories, emotions, self, get wired and rewired as, our, as a result of our interactions together. People alter our brains. Is that, isn't that strange? I mean, the, uh, the circuits get changed. The neurochemistry gets changed. It doesn't matter if you talk to somebody who speaks Mandarin or somebody who speaks Arabic or Australian. <laughs> Every one of them will tell you that if the heart, if you've, if you've been betrayed by somebody, there's, there's pain that goes all throughout your body. It's because because betrayal registers in one area or another of the brain. Um, people can trigger pain in our brains. The beautiful truth is that people can also reverse it. Um, so studies, I don't know how they did this study, but apparently the, in the burgeoning field of interpersonal neurobiology, they did some studies which indicate that if you send an electrical shock through one person, the, the pain actually, it registers differently in that area of the brain. It's not nearly as strong if that person is holding somebody else's hand. You think about it. Um, how do you feel when you're going to get your blood drawn? Most of us do not like needles. I hate to have my blood drawn. Whenever I'm in, in the, uh, the doctor's office and they're going to draw my blood, I intentionally do anything that I can not to look at the tray with the needles on there. And I'm going to carry on the most spirited conversation possible with a nurse. It, I, we're going to relate really well together for the next five minutes because, because I need you. Uh, I need you to help me for, to miss the pain. That's actually, that's partly what we get in the body of Christ. We've had five kids, so we've gone into labor and delivery five times. I think, I hope, you could tell me, Aaron, if in those occasions as they're funneling the IV up through your arm, I was ha holding your hand uh, on the other side of the bed. That's what we have with each other. That's what we're supposed to have with each other in the body of Christ. Hold on to what you have. It just reiterates how important it is for us to be in loving community. If we can be part of what each other has to hold on to, 
That's God's design. That's God's design. Finally, let's look at verse 12, at the end of verse 12. So him who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will he leave it. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on him my new name. Imagine what it's going to be like to have Jesus inscribe on you his name the greatest gift and he's going to do it on you the real you the the spiritually weak you we are a very strange amalgamation of spiritual strengths and weaknesses every one of us I came across a good example of this in the Bible this week um do you know anything about ancient leather tanning? I, I mean, I know something about modern leather tanning. I love to smell the uh, baseball mitt, that fine tan leather oiled up, and catchers and pitchers reported to spring training like on Thursday. So some of us are very happy about that. Our quality of life is going to improve dramatically. Um, back in the day, leather tanners, that was one of the most disgusting, despicable jobs you could participate in. They would actually put leather tanneries on the outskirts of town, downwind, and they would make leather tanners live on the outskirts of town, downwind, (laughs) because they smelled so bad. In the writings of the Jewish Mishnah, the leather tanners are listed among the undesirable people of the society alongside of beggars and prostitutes. The reason this matters is because in Acts chapter 9, Peter is staying at the home of, do you remember, Simon the Tanner. He's staying at the home of a Jewish leather tanner. And that was, I think, one of the the beautiful spiritual strengths that was true of Peter. It was true of Jesus. It was true of many of the disciples, the apostles. They were willing to go and associate with the undesirable people in a society. Peter was willing to go into a house and not be ashamed. He was willing to stay in a dirty, smelly house and have fellowship with a dirty, smelly man. But on that same occasion, God comes to him and says, Peter, I want you to go to another man's house. And who was that other man's house? It it was Cornelius, the centurion. Now, ironically... Cornelius' house would have smelled a whole lot better than Simon's. Cornelius was a rich centurion, maybe a colonel in the Roman army. It would have been pretty posh and luxurious. And yet Peter says, (laughs) no, no, Lord, I I won't do that. And here's Peter, a man who is spiritually strong enough to preach to 5,000 people. And he's spiritually weak enough to be ashamed to enter into the house of a non-Jew. And I think that is a perfect illustration of us. We're such an amalgamation of spiritual strength and weakness. Some of us can be exceedingly generous with our material possessions. We can care for people so sacrificially. We can do such a good job at our jobs, give our employers 
way more value than they ever pay us for. And yet we can't tame our anger and we're plagued by our tongues and we can't get along with our spouses. And we, it is so aggravating if you know that to be true about yourself. It's aggravating enough that you want to pull your hair out of your head. Isn't it? The good news is that Jesus is patient with Peter. Jesus never gives up on him. He never rejects or despises him. Jesus never closes the open door to the new Jerusalem on him. So take heart. You have a patient Savior. Jesus holds the keys of David, and he has locked the door open, not shut. (laughs) He has locked the door open, not shut. Amen.